Whenever I ask Pastor Chris to speak, I never tell him what to speak on. If I'm in a series, I can say, if you want to continue in the series, continue in it, or just do a standalone message, whatever you want to do, and we'll get back to the series when I get back into town. So I never tell him what to do. But before I left last week, I said, by the way, what are you going to speak on? And he told me what his subject was, but then he explained that within his sermon, he was going to reference the Beatitudes. Well, guess what my new series starting today is about? It's about the Beatitudes, so naturally I'm thinking, well, maybe this is going to be too much Beatitudes, but uh, then Chris said, don't worry, Pastor. He said, this is going to be great. I'm going to touch on them, and I know you will elaborate on them in great detail, so I think this will be a great introduction to your new series. So with, with a clear conscience, let me say how excited I, am, excited I am to begin this new series this morning that we are titling The Standard, because it is about the sermon of all sermons preached by none other than Jesus himself. It's located in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to go ahead and turn there in preparation, please do so. We'll have it up on the screen also you can follow along. But while you're doing that, uh, looking for Matthew chapter 5, let me say this. This message from Jesus has been given a couple different names, a couple titles. Some call it the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason for that is because Jesus delivered it to crowds sitting on the hillside along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Others title this sermon the Beatitudes, as I referenced to earlier. But no matter what you call it, one thing that we can all agree upon is that it's the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. St. Augustine described it as a perfect standard for the Christian life. That's where I got the title, that word standard. Dietrich Bonhoeffer based his uh, classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, upon it. And this powerful message from Jesus has even exerted great influence upon people outside of the Christian faith. As an example, Mahatma Gandhi based his political approach on Jesus' sermon and the words found within, while Hitler and his followers spent a lot of time attacking its precepts because they had no intention of following them. But no matter how you look at it, this sermon has had more impact upon our world than any other sermon since. And uh, because inside of it, it contains, Jesus shows us the formulas and the attitudes that are required of us as we daily try to be more like Christ himself. Before we get into the content of this message, I want to look at the setting. When Jesus delivered these precious words, it was a time where there was a snowballing of interest in who he was and what he was doing. Our Lord had been traveling around Galilee. He had been teaching in the synagogues. And in addition, news of Jesus had spread all the way to Syria. So people were coming by the droves to hear him. It wasn't just to hear him speak. They were also coming with hopes of being healed of all kinds of physical ailments. So great multitudes were following him clear out into the wilderness beyond the Jordan River, and this is the setting that Jesus is dealing with here as he presents this greatest message ever spoken. And I've decided today to read all of chapter 5. It's a long chapter, but my hope is that you will allow this to sink in to your spirit this morning. This series is going to be a breakdown of this, this sermon, but I want to read it in its entirety to you this morning. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 48. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, 
he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly. While you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. 
And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Those are very powerful words spoken by Jesus. And my prayer is that throughout this series, that God will grant us blessing and understanding of what these words mean and how we are to apply them to our life. So I want to begin this morning by starting this series and looking at verse 3 out of all those verses. It's one of the many blessed are statements when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And let me just say that these words are not just statements. These words of Jesus, blessed are, they are congratulatory exclamations. And I want to do my best to describe this word blessed that begins in all of these early statements that are found in Matthew chapter 5. This familiar word blessed does not mean happy because happiness is a subjective state. It is a feeling. So Jesus is not talking here about how people feel. He, he, rather, he is making an objective statement about what God thinks of certain individuals. What I mean is, blessed is a positive judgment by God that means to be approved or to find approval. It's a kind of a verbal pat on the back, if you will, from our Heavenly Father. I like how Max Licato puts it when he wrote, blessedness indicates the smile of God. I also want to underscore the fact that these are positive exclamations that guide us upward to greater joy in our Christian life. This is a positive sermon. It is full of do's and not a bunch of don'ts. These are lessons that tell each of us how to enjoy the Christian life and how to rise to new heights of abundant living that only Jesus can provide. 
And so I want to take a closer look at this text this morning by reading it in several different biblical translations. I believe that this is a great way for us to study the Bible because it helps us to begin to really understand these, these beautifully powerful words. And, and, and because in, in the New International Version, in, the, in the, uh, the King James Version, the New King James Version, as well as the New American Standard, they all translate it the same. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The New English Bible says it this way. How blessed are those who know they are poor. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. J.B. Phillips translates it like this. How happy are the humble-minded, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The Living Bible reads, Humble men are very fortunate, for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. The New Living Translation puts it this way. God blesses those who realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. The Amplified Bible expands this to read, and this is the longest one, blessed, spiritually prosperous, happy to be admired are the poor in spirit, those devoid of spiritual arrogance, those who regard themselves as insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, both now and forever. And the Message Bible captures its meaning this way, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope, with less of you there is more of God and his rule. You can just feel the positive exclamations in each one of those translations. So this morning, I want to organize our study around three very important questions. And this is the first question. What exactly does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think the best way to answer that is to first of all rule out some misconceptions that people have embraced over the years when it comes to this verse. For example, poor in spirit does not mean low self-esteem or feeling poorly about yourself, nor does it refer to a kind of, of mock humility whereby you put yourself down in front of your friends and your loved ones so that they'll disagree with you and offer you a compliment instead. Do you, do you get my drift? This is not being poor in spirit. This is called self-focus. It's pride, and it's not humility. Another thing poor in spirit does not mean is material poverty, being poor in our possessions or in our finances. Many have taught that this verse teaches us that God favors those who are poor in the material sense. In fact, the 4th century Roman emperor Julian the Apostate went so far as to say that he wanted to confiscate all the property belonging to Christians. Why was that? So that they would become poor, and therefore they would be certain to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He thought that robbing them would be doing them a favor, but like so many other people, old Julian misunderstood this beatitude. Think of it like this. If Jesus were, was referring to material poverty, then a Christian would think twice before trying to alleviate the burdens of the destitute and of the starving in our world. And on the other end of the spectrum, if we interpreted poor in spirit this way, the church would offer clinics where we would train Christians and how to steal from the rich so that we could get the rich into heaven. And of course, it doesn't mean this. In fact, God does not sanction poverty in any biblical passage. He talks about poverty, but he doesn't sanction it. For example, 
David says in Psalms 37, 25, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. Plus, in his written word, God repeatedly commands us to help the needy. So this beatitude was not referring to material poverty or financial bankruptcy. Not at all. It was referring to absolute spiritual bankruptcy before God. Now, for us to fully understand this stage, we're going to have to do a brief lesson in New Testament Greek. There are two words in the Greek language for poor, and the first one is penis, P-E-N-E-E-S. This was a first century word used to describe a man who had to work for a living. This kind of man did not have a surplus of resources by any means. He was not rich but neither was he destitute. He was poor, but he still had enough to barely get along day after day in life. That's what it means to be penis poor. The other Greek word for poor is takis, starting with a P, takis. And this is the one that we find here in Matthew chapter 3. Takis was used to describe absolute and abject poverty. It describes a level of poverty that has beaten someone down to their knees. As a comparison, let me put it this way. Penis describes an individual who had nothing superfluous, while Takis describes the man who had nothing at all. Penis means that you can earn your own living. Takis means that you have no resource in yourself even to live. You're totally dependent upon somebody else. You're so poor that you beg like that beggar Lazarus who sat at the gate of the rich man who was desperate for crumbs to fall from his table. What I mean is, is Tacchus referred not just to the poor, but to the begging poor. But remember, we're not talking here about financial or material poverty. Jesus wasn't referring to our possessions or our financial resources. He was referring to our spiritual state. But let me just stop and say something that is very, very obvious. Material possessions definitely do have the capacity to make normal people feel like they don't need God. If we're not careful, our money and the many things that our money can buy can prevent us from understanding the importance of this very important spiritual truth. And it's not just those who love to hoard money and the things that that money can buy. They aren't the only ones who can become uh, incapable of embodying this attitude. The educated, the arrogant, the strong, the independent, the, the successful, the popular, the religious, the movers and the shakers, they can crash and burn in life by missing Jesus' point here. You see, there are many things that can make us proud. So proud that we don't think we need God's grace. For example, if you think that you're going to end up in heaven by any other way than trusting in Jesus, then my friend, you've got a major problem in your life. As someone once said, we may be well-educated, but we are spiritually ignorant. We may be financially secure, but we are spiritually bankrupt. So please understand this. The central message of this first beatitude is that we cannot save ourselves. 
Not through divine rituals, not through the right devotion. Nothing we do helps. So this first statement, Jesus was saying, blessed is the man. what, What Jesus is saying is, blessed is the man who knows this. Blessed is the man who is poor in spirit. Blessed is the person who realizes their own utter helplessness before God Almighty. This person is to be commended. Look at it this way. Can we work to earn our salvation? Are we pennies poor so that we can work to earn our way into heaven? Can we do do just enough to get into heaven by the hair of our chinny-chin-chin? No, because we are not pennies poor, we are takas poor. We are absolutely incapable of this. We are totally dependent on the unmerited grace of God. You can no more work your way into heaven than you can fly home from this service by flapping your arms. Jesus is saying to us, Today, blessed are the spiritual paupers, the spiritually empty, the spiritually bankrupt, those who know that they are sinners, those who who cringe in the corner crying out for God, for mercy. God commends them because they are the only ones who will ever know him. In Psalm 40, Verse 17, King David shows that he was poor in spirit when he says this, I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. In other words, he's saying, I have nothing to make me deserving of your love, God, but boy, do I need it. You are my help. You are my strength. You are my deliverer. And God, please don't delay. Listen, being poor in spirit is the idea of coming before God with empty hands. It's like the second verse of that great hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And that verse is so spot on because this beatitude is talking about the person who has realized that God's standards are not within human attainability. They are too high for us to reach on our own. Now, unfortunately, many works-based faith systems disagree with that. They teach that you can do enough to earn your salvation. And even Christians, pious, foolish Christians, sometimes embrace this proud and ungraceful mindset. They act as if with their good deeds, they can somehow pay their way into heaven. To these people, every prayer is a check that's written, and every good deed is a payment that's made. The idea is if they do one good act for every bad act in their life, their account will be balanced out in the end, and they'll be gained admission into heaven. In his book, The Grip of Grace, Max Licato says many people think like this. He says, if I can counter my cussing with compliments, my lust with loyalties, my complaints with contributions, my vices with victories, then won't my account be justified? Let me point out the foolishness of this kind of thinking by listing several holes or literally glaring problems with that kind of a mindset. First, we do not know the cost of our sin. In our world, the price of gas is easy to find. 
Every gas station puts it up in clear view on their sign. But it's not so clear when it comes to our sin. For example, what is the charge for getting mad at a traffic jam on I-5 coming back home from Reading? What if I get ticked off at some guy who cuts me off and I yell a few choice words his way? What do I do to pay for that crime or that sin? Do I drive at the exact posted speed limit for 10 minutes to atone for that outburst? Do I give a wave and a smile and a little horn beep to the next 10 cars that go by me? What is the penalty? Who knows? Or what if I wake up in a bad mood? What's the charge for a couple of mopey hours? Will one church service next Sunday offset the grumpy morning that I'm having today? Will serving some way within my church make up for it? And what qualifies for a bad mood anyway? Is the charge for grumpiness less on a cloudy day? And am I permitted a certain number of grouchy days per year? Now, obviously, I'm approaching this in a, in a in somewhat humorous way, but it's confusing, isn't it? It's really confusing. And to make matters worse, not only do we not know the cost of our sin, but we don't always know the occasions of our sins. You see, even our perceptions have been negatively affected by our sinful state. So there are times that you and I sin, and it doesn't even register that we sin. Max Licato shed some pretty good light on this when he wrote, I was 12 years old before I knew it was a sin to hate your enemy. My bike was stolen when I was eight. I hated the thief for four years. How do I pay for those sins? Do I get an exemption for ignorance? And what about the sins I'm committing now without realizing it? What if someone somewhere discovers it is a sin to play golf? Or what if God thinks the way I play golf is a sin? Oh boy, I'll have some serious settling up to do. Well, there's a third thing for you to think about this morning. What about our secret sins? What about those times when we sin by doing good deeds so that others will admire us? You know, those things that look good on the outside, but in fact are really bad because of our motivations? And what about sins of omission? Any secret sin of omission in your sin statement, bank statement this month? Did you miss any chance to do good? Did you overlook an opportunity to forgive someone? Did you neglect an open door in which you could serve? Did you seize every chance to encourage your friends? If so, how do you make up for those infractions? And here are some other concerns. For example, is there a grace period when it comes to paying for your sin? I mean, our credit cards offer us to make a minimum payment, and if that's what we do, then they'll roll the balance of debt onto your next month. So does God allow that? Will he let me pay off today's greed next year? And what about interest? If I leave my sinful greed on my statement for 12 months, does it incur more sin debt? Do you get my drift here? We can't pay for our own sins. And it is utterly laughable to think that we could. We are fallen beings, ladies and gentlemen. Our actions 
our inactions, even our thoughts and our daily desires condemn us. The idea of paying for our sins with good deeds is futile. And by the way, the Apostle Paul says that the purpose of God's law was to help us to see this fact. The law was given to show us our sin. The law was given to help us to see how absolutely dependent that we are on the unmerited grace of God. I mean, our inability to always obey the law of God in thought and in word and in deed and in action shows us that all people are equally guilty before God. In Romans 3, 19 through 20, Paul wrote this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sins. Do you see what Paul is trying to say here? The purpose of the law was not to save us, but rather it was to condemn us. Its function is to show us how desperate we are, how talkish we are for God's grace. You know, many people criticize Christians. They say that uh, their faith in Jesus is nothing but a crutch. I've heard this said repeatedly, and my response is usually this, are, are crutches bad? Of course they're not. Crutches and walkers help people get around that couldn't get around without them. Why does a crutch become a bad thing when it is applied to our Christian walk? Well, John Piper shed some light on that when he wrote this. People think if Christianity is a crutch, then it's only good for cripples, and we don't like to see ourselves as cripples. So apparently we're too proud or we're too self-sufficient to think that way so far too many people view this statement as a put-down. And I admit, the first time that I heard that phrase, it bothered me, because it made me feel like a 98-pound spiritual weakling. But then when I thought about it, and I, real, I, I began to realize how true it is, I am crippled. I am a sinner who is absolutely dependent upon God's gracious forgiveness. I need Jesus. And I'm not ashamed to proclaim that to you today. And the fact is that each one of you in this room needs Jesus in your life. We are all talkous before God because all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's righteous and holy standard. We're all cripples. I can't help but think of the words of Jesus in Mark 2.17. Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the only people who will ever receive what Jesus has to give are people who know they are sick. It will be people who realize they are spiritually and morally crippled. They are like those land-bound birds. You know those birds whose wings don't work. That's what being poor in spirit is. It's a sense of powerlessness. 
It's a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before Almighty God. It is a sense of moral uncleanliness. It is a sense of personal unworthiness before God. It is the realization that without God, our wings literally are clipped and we cannot fly. It's a sense that if there be any life, if there be any joy, if there be any usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. And the reason that I emphasize the word here, sense, is because everybody is poor in spirit. Everybody, whether they sense it or not, are powerless and bankrupt and helpless and unclean and unworthy before God. But listen to me carefully. Not everyone is blessed. Do you get what I just said? When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he does not mean everybody. He is talking about those who sense it, those who realize it, those who admit it, those who taste God's presence in their life and who have declared spiritual bankruptcy and are fully aware of their spiritual crisis. Their cupboards are bare. Their pockets are empty. Their options are gone. They have long since quit demanding justice. They're just simply now pleading for mercy. They don't brag. They beg. They ask God to do for them what they are too crippled to do for themselves without him. That is what it means to be poor in spirit, ladies and gentlemen. So on to my next question. Why would Jesus bring, excuse me, why would Jesus begin this sermon, his sermon with this particular beatitude? Let me do that again. Why would Jesus begin his sermon with this particular beatitude? Why place poor in spirit first? Well, I think our Lord did this on purpose because if you look specifically at the beatitudes, you will find that they are progressive. What I mean is they build on each other. We've got to start here. And remember, Jesus is the master teacher. He is God in the flesh. So with him at the pulpit, there is no such thing as random. He intentionally began with verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I want you to look at the progression of these spiritual lessons with me. As I said, verse 3 being poor in spirit is basically having the right attitude towards sin. That right attitude leads us to verse 4, to mourn over our state as fallen beings. Then after we've seen our sin and we've grieved over our sin, that leads us to verse 5, where we are meek with the right sense of humility. This compels us to verse 6, to seek hunger, to seek, or, excuse me, to seek and to thirst and to hunger for righteousness which manifests itself in verse 7 of our being merciful towards other sinners. To help us move on to verse 8 and to become pure of heart, which gives birth in verse 9 to a peacemaking spirit. And the result of being a peacemaker in verses 10 and 11 is that we are persecuted. We are reviled. We are falsely accused. Why? Because this kind of a lifestyle that Jesus teaches us to live, it irritates our fallen culture. It goes completely against the flow. But when it's all said and done, verse 12 says we can rejoice 
and be exceedingly glad for our culture, this world will not last forever. Someday we will be in eternity with Jesus. And when that day dawns, we'll see that great is our reward in heaven. And then when we live like this here on this earth, when we embrace and embody all of these beatitudes, then we can be sure that we are the salt and the light of this world, as found in verses 13 and 14. So we will stand out if we live these beatitudes. But please understand something. We can't be salt and light until we start in verse 3. We can't skip verses 3 through 11 and go right to verses 13 and 14 because it just won't work. It would be like trying to build a skyscraper by beginning with the top floor. So we must begin our journey as Jesus' disciples right here. Becoming poor in spirit is foundational to living out the other beatitudes of the Christian life. In fact, you can't even become a Christian unless and until you are poor in spirit. You might as well expect to grow fruit without trees if you think the graces of the Christian life grow without Tacus. This is where it all begins. Warren Wiersbe writes this, true poverty of spirit is the soil out of which the fruit of the spirit can be cultivated. See, it is the very th first thing that must happen in the life of anybody who wants to enter into God's kingdom. No one ever decided to follow Jesus on the basis of pride. Not one person. Let me put it this way. The doorway to the kingdom of God is a very low doorway. And the only people who see their sin, the people who see their sin in humility and can bow low can come in. To begin the Christ-like life, to enter into his kingdom, we must bow low. We must, in fact, get on our knees and, to him and confess our helpless, sinful state. We must begin with humility. So this is why Jesus began this message on the attitudes of a disciple with this particular beatitude. We must be humble in order to receive God's approval. What I'm trying to say is this. We will only be filled when we own our emptiness. We cannot be made worthy until we recognize our unworthiness. Or as someone has said, we cannot live until we first admit that we are dead. One last question. How do we become poor in spirit? How do we embrace this attitude? I want to suggest to you three things this morning. Number one, daily ask God to help you to see your sin as sin. See, our sinful state blinds us in such a way that if left to ourselves, we, re we, we eventually and gradually begin to justify our own sin. We become proud and we begin to think like the world thinks. So to remain poor in spirit, we must regularly, meaning daily, sometimes meaning moment by moment, to ask God to show us our sin. We need to ask him to, to so shine the light of his holiness on our attitudes and our actions so that we can see it. 
The fact is, we need God's help in this because, as I, as I said earlier, we can't see sin sometimes as sin. Every day, this culture in which we live pushes us farther and farther away from God's standard. The longer that we live in this sinful world, the blinder we get to sin. That is a simple truth. So to remain poor in spirit, we need God's expertise. And we also need to pray, God, forgive me of my hidden faults. Forgive me of those blind spots that everybody else can see, but I can't see myself. Keep me from willful sins so that they may not rule over me. Secondly, you've got to stop the comparison game. You've got to stop comparing yourself to other people. It is not possible to create true pro- the true poverty of spirit by looking within and then looking at other people around you. The human heart, in case you don't know, is corrupt. And because of it, we will always latch onto somebody who is worse in some respect than we are. We will find someone who is prouder than we are. And although we may still be quite proud, we will congratulate ourselves on being humble, humbler than him or humbler than her. We will find someone who has stronger fits of anger and rage than we do and will congratulate ourselves for being more moderate than they are. We tend to do this as human beings in all of our shortcomings. So don't look around. Look up. Constantly compare yourself to your heavenly Father. We must see our poverty against his plenty. The quickest way for us to become spiritually poor is to look at God. Why? Because in the presence of the only one who is perfect, how can we boast about how good we are? Do you remember how Isaiah responded to his look up? In true Takis form, he cried out in Isaiah 6:5, Woe is me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So to become poor in spirit, don't compare yourself to others. Don't look around. Instead, you need to look up. C.S. Lewis wrote this, and I love it. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. So to be poor in spirit, number one, ask for God's help. Number two, stop comparing yourself to other people. And number three, daily learn to depend on God for literally everything. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 5, without me, you can do nothing. Every one of us needs to acknowledge that fact this morning. You know, the prayer that I pray most often is, God, help me. It is. God, help me. I pray that because I have learned that the hard way that I am talkous without God I can't do this job on my own. I fall flat on my face every time I try. 
So I'm constantly praying, God, help me, help me, please help me. Anyone who chooses or desires or wants to be poor in spirit must learn to pray that prayer. We need to prostrate ourselves before God daily. And we need to say those words because we are doomed without God. We are all a heartbeat away from an eternity without him. And we need to acknowledge that fact. We need to be poor in spirit because God says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I don't know about you, but I desire to be blessed by God. Amen.